you know, the best ideas always come to you two minutes after the sermon's over. And um, Jeff Zimmerman came up to me and uh, reminded me, if you want to think about that whole issue of the kingdom, the, the not now and the now, the not yet, the now and the not yet, I think a really helpful illustration of that is, is King David. So King David gets anointed king by Samuel, right? And at that point, is he the king? Who is functionally the king for decades? Saul. And I think that's this, the position. I mean, it's, it's not, it seems fitting that David's greater son echoes some of the events in David's life, echo the events of David's greater son. That Jesus, um, he's, he is king. And just like David had followers and men who were who with him, Jesus has a growing band of followers. But there came a day when Saul was struck down in battle and David began to rule Israel in a very different, full sense. And that's really, I think, a a helpful analogy of Jesus' current rule in his current kingdom and the kingdom that will come. Um, And if Jeff had just reminded me of that before the message instead of after, that would have been good too. So, no. Um, So any questions or thoughts from this morning? When the microphones are ready, David Olsgaard. I thought I'd jump in first because this is going back a couple of weeks, actually. Oh, so, okay. Um, in Luke twenty-one fourteen, we're not to prepare a defense. And I just wondered if you'd comment and contrast that with First Peter three fourteen and 15, which says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is within you. So are there two condition situations and when you should be prepared and not be prepared? Or? Well, there's a couple. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple of things. First of all, even though Jesus tells them not to prepare a defense, they are to prepare to not prepare a defense. They're, no, settle this in your minds. There's preparatory work that they should do in preparing to not prepare a defense. And that's settling it in your minds. So settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. So I think what he's, I think this is very specific persecution he's talking about. And they're, they're preparing for it by not writing down speeches. And in one sense, I think we could always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within us without necessarily writing out um, legal defenses. So certainly Peter is telling us in general, I need to be ready in general. Someone comes up and says, hey, why do you believe what you believe? What's the basis of your hope that I don't go, uh, let me get back to you. I should be ready for that. Um, should I always be ready with a sermon in the back of my pocket in case I get called before the governor to, to be accused for being a Christian? No. So I, I would think that they are not fully overlapping Peter's talking to general in life and not necessarily um, persecution, although certainly I think that fits in. But even the defense I'm making is different than what he says here, how to answer. Um, They're being charged with crimes. Um, They're being charged with being seditious. And they're potentially being charged with capital crimes. So, I mean, there's more of a legal court concept. Don't don't be worried about how you're going to defend. So Stephen didn't plan that speech beforehand, I don't think. I don't think he whipped out his notes, and I think God gave him wisdom, and he just spoke through Israel's history, and yet 
you and I ought to be ready to, to, to give defenses and answers for our hope. So I would say it's partially slightly different context and partially slightly different instructions that don't mutually exclude. I can be genuinely ready without having exactly what I'm going to say in situation A prepared. And um, yeah, that's... You buy that? What do you think? Yeah. Okay, you'll think on that. Uh, one other quickie. Yeah, oh, um, okay. This is going back so a week easily. or so, too. Um, Luke twenty one twenty five. there'll be signs and sun and moon and stars on the earth and dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. I don't, in your sermon, I don't remember you commented on the roar of the sea and the waves. Is there anything to that or the beast coming up out of the sea? Or that, revel- that's certainly nothing antecedent. Revelation's going to talk about meteors falling in, wormwood's going to fall in, poison a third of the water, things coming out of the ocean. Antecedent scripture, not so much. So I think there it would probably be associated with, if, if stuff's happening with the moon, it would affect the tides. Moving forward in Revelation, as more stuff gets written, I think we, Revelation does give further clarity to disturbances in the seas. But to what they would know about when he spoke, not a ton of antecedents. So I think of the message I said the things that would accompany that, we, we were moving along, did not spend much time with the disturbances of the sea. But if you read from Revelation 6 on, there is just like a third of the population gets taken out, then a third of those left get taken out, then a third, just like wham, 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 wham. And I think that's probably what Jesus is referencing that later Revelation gives greater clarity to. Um, so, yeah. Good stuff, good questions. Oh, all the way in the back. Mr. Kruger. Well, I originally only had two things, but that uh, made three. Uh, where it talks about the sea, sometimes isn't that a metaphor for the world? Or coming out of the... Is that in some places? No, I, I don't know about the not. world. The world is that place between waters. So in Genesis 1, the dry land's made when the Lord makes a division between the waters. Okay. So I've heard people say that the, the seas can be a picture of chaos, which is why okay. in the new heavens and the new earth there is no sea. Um, and the picture of destruction, God destroyed the Pharaoh's army with the sea. The Israelites were not a great seafaring people. Um, and so frequently in the Psalms, the seas are pictured as troubling, scary. Uh, you've cast me into the deepest depths, you know, as deep calls yeah. the deep. But I, I, I'm not aware of the sea being a picture of the earth, rather than the earth being that which exists within the waters, okay. you know, as they're separated. So, um, not sure. If you've got texts you want to point me to, I'll be happy um, to look at them. It just seemed like there was a text about the Antichrist coming up out of the sea and yeah, referring the to the... But I, I, that wasn't my, one of my points. Oh, okay, so okay. That was, that was for free. It's not okay. A, Okay. I just thought maybe you'd heard okay. about that. I'll look into uh, it, but off the, off the top of my head, no. Okay. Uh, the thing on the signs of the end times, mm-hmm. um, I've always heard that like Israel coming back into the land was one of the signs. And so a lot of people said, well, that was in 1948, and we're past that generation. But what you said today, it sounded like you're talking more about the other signs, like the... In the heavens and well, stuff? Well, in, in Luke, the two signs... So if, so if you look at Luke 21, they want to know when and what will be the sign. And Jesus tells them the things that happened before. So the first bunch of things he says, look at verse 9. 
must take place first, but the end will not be at once. So those things he speaks about, they're not immediate harbingers then. But before all this, and then the description of the persecution is not specifically a sign. There may well be persecution that is occurring before he comes, but there's going to be persecution throughout the age. Church history confirms this. When he finally gets to say the things he points to and answer their question, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. And when you see these things, and the things he, see, he lists right before that in 28 are the signs, and the sun, the moon, the stars, and the response of terror on the earth. Right. Those are the things he points to as, okay, now lift up your heads, get ready, the end is near. To, so, me, that, to me that makes, I don't think I've heard it described that way before. Oh, okay. And that really makes sense to me because, you know, like, you know, Israel coming back to the land might be a requirement for the end times, but... Because I know a lot of people poo-pooed it. It's like, well, that happened in 48, and it's been longer than a generation. <laughs> right, right, right. But the way you explained it this morning, it's like, oh, it's these, these particular things. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense. It's like once it starts in earnest, it's, it's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen yeah. quickly. Well, um, and Israel returning to the land, let me just say that. It certainly does seem to be a prerequisite, right. just as there needs to be a temple for Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 2 talks about someone who sets himself up in the temple of God. There would appear to be, need to be a temple. But God could cast Israel away from the land and bring them back at another time. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, ISIS, it's, it certainly seems interesting that after 2,000 years off the land, the same people with the same language and the same religion are back on the same land. Well, that, that's interesting. That, the way it's that... noteworthy. <laughs> You know? The way the way that the world portrays Israel is, right. it's it's like it's already right. kind of started. The, uh, but but uh, I, I can't be certain of that. I right. can't be certain right. that there's any prophetic significance to Israel being back in the land, right. except as you said, it does seem to be a pre-requirement for certain things to happen. Yeah. But whether I don't know. Um, yeah. Go on. Oh, uh, the other thing was uh, you talked about standing uh, before the Son of Man at the end. And not that I disagree with anything you said, but just to kind of add, for me, um, I know that I, being in Christ, I've been bathed in his righteousness. And so I know that my, I think Luther said, even our best works we need repenting of. Yes. And only the good stuff that I do is through him and in him. And so um, and the reason I'm kind of, that point is a little more poignant to me right now is I've been, Studying some of the new perspective on Paul, which denies the imputation of yeah. Christ's righteousness. And for me, that's kind of a big thing. Well, I'd encourage you, my, my pastor's pen article that'll be out next month, next week from July, actually addresses some of that. But I, I think, let me, let me see if you'd agree with this. I think there's a tension that can be held between our righteousness being in Christ, credited to us, not earned, our best deeds or filthy rags. The basis of our standing before God is faith and faith alone in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Yet, there's great emphasis and importance in the New Testament on persevering and faithfulness and some level of argument that we want to be faithful so that we are unashamed when he comes. So go... Let me go to 1 John 2, which, where the argument, I think, is unmistakably that. And then we can try to talk about, okay, so how do those two things fit together? So all I want to first establish is arguments like that, motivations like that, are, in fact, given. So 1 Peter 2. Um, 1 John, you're quite right. Sorry. I'm misspeaking all over the place. Um, so 1 John 2. 
28 through 29. And now little children abide or remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I, I want to endeavor to abide in Christ so that I will be unashamed when he comes. And I think part of that is Paul's teaching that even though we never stand before God's legal tribunal, we will never stand before that judgment. Christ has stood in our stead. There is the judgment seat of Christ. And, and Paul says each of us will receive for the things he has done, whether good or bad. There is going to be something to receive at the judgment seat of Christ for bad things. Nothing in the category of wrath and legal punishment. But I think if you think of it more like a family issue. So, so at salvation, we enter into God's family. And nothing my kids do is going to cause me to cast them from me and to kick them out. There are plenty of things they can do that might make them go to bed early, that they might get disciplined for. And so within that context, you don't want to make dad, you don't want dad to be ashamed of you. You don't want, you don't want, mom, you don't want mom to be ashamed of what you've done. I think we can still give those motivations as long as we understand this isn't about why you're saved. This is about because you're saved, live in a way that you won't be ashamed when he comes. But I do think those types of arguments are in the Bible. And I think this is one of them. You want, when he comes, to not be found, I don't know, looking at porn or, you know, doing something immoral or wrong. You want to be found faithful when he comes. You want to be like the servant who doesn't beat the slaves, doesn't get drunk, but is faithful to his master's business. That's a motivation for holy living. Would you well, agree like, with that, or would you want to tweak with that, or no? Go, go. Oh, it's, it's just like it, we're saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. Correct. So it works, works are there, but it's not right. Well, and and the 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 consequences for good and bad are in a totally different sphere. So, like, there's there's God's law court, if you will, the great white throne judgment, right, where where it's pass fail, righteous or unrighteous, heaven or hell. Nothing we do contributes or affects that outcome one bit. Either we are clothed in Christ, either he is our righteousness, he has performed for us on our behalf the righteous life we could not perform for ourselves. Either he has borne in his body on the cross our sins or not. That's it. Okay. There's, for lack of a better term, a family court. <laughs> There's a family code Right? Um, that's how Paul speaks of the church. I write these things, 1 Timothy 3, and let case I'm delayed so that you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church. And within that family system, there is discipline. Right? So, so on the one hand, God doesn't take our evil deeds into account in the sphere of cosmic justice, but he certainly disciplines his son whom he loves, and he can't do that if he's unaware of what we're doing. So within that sphere of a family relationship, we can speak about punishment and reward, pride and shame, honor and dishonor. I think that's the sphere we're talking about when it talks about standing before him, not shrinking back in shame. We're not in any way dealing over here with like justification. We're dealing just with that family. Is, is dad going to be pleased to see me when he comes? Is, 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 is Christ going to be pleased to see me when he comes because of what I'm doing? You know, does that... Yeah, okay. is that would that be like the bema seat? Yes, precisely. Yes, yes. and then, well, and along with that, it yeah. does talk about at the last judgment the bad being burnt off. 
Yes. So First Corinthians three. Everyone's yeah. work will be be tested with fire. Some yeah, people build so. with gold, silver, and costly jewels. And that might not be exactly pleasant either. So I guess. Well, well even there, Paul. If one's work burns up, he himself be saved, but as though escaping through fire. That does not sound pleasant at all. That sounds like a close call. <laughs> um, so, no, absolutely. Yeah, okay, that's... that's Anything more, sir? Okay. Oh, Lee Carpenter. It's coming, Lee. It's coming. Well, what you're just talking about kind of makes me feel bad because like I've had some pretty bumpy points of my Christian life and I, I feel like I've got them pretty well cleaned up but then I think it's, I don't know it's just depressing to think about the bad things and do they, if you're still I mean hopefully, I mean my hope is that the fact that I'm not clinging, clinging to those bad things no, anymore right. that God will take that into consideration. Yes. No, no, I, and I, okay, this is, okay, we'll, we'll go here. Um, it is clear, so I got, this you can tell I'm settling down when I'm sitting down on the staff, okay, okay. Um, there are degrees of reward, there are degrees of punishment. Jesus teaches that. Um, and we have a hard time contemplating how there can be degrees of reward without sort of Oh, those poor Christians with smaller rewards. And what if I'm one of those? Will I feel bad? No. Um, But I think it's fitting that we see the fullness of the grace of God given to us, not just in our salvation, but every time we sin willfully, every time we trample the Son of Man underfoot and insult the Spirit of grace, tremendous grace is being given to us that we're not just consumed And it will not necessarily be pleasant to see that, but if we're to appreciate and praise God for the grace given to us, it makes sense to me that, no, I need to see the fullness of my salvation, not just the grace afforded at the cross, but the grace that was afforded through the mid-90s when I was living like a profligate, and I knew the truth, and God didn't rid the earth of me. And the grace of God where I was a poor husband, and he tarried and was patient. I mean, I, I think... I ought to praise Christ for all of that grace, you know? So I, it makes sense to me that there'll be an accounting. There'll be in, in, and to praise God where things where I was faithful, where I was able to be obedient. I, I have to believe that that's in a, in a, in a, in a somehow, and, and guys like Jonathan Edwards have tried to theorize how, but that that's done in a way that isn't depleting ultimately our joy in heaven, that we're able to do that. Maybe it will be that we're not, Pride will be gone, and we're no longer the me of all people. Just wow, even as a Christian, I was a piece of work, and you were fit. Wow, you were so gracious to me. Wow, I can't believe you. Wow, I mean, I think it will ultimately further our joy, even as we realize we. I wasn't nearly as faithful as I thought I was, (laughs) you know, um, something like that. But it at least makes sense to me that. There's so much more grace being given, even than just the grace of salvation. There's this ongoing grace where, I mean, if God held me to the standard of Ananias and Sapphira, I'd be dead. The first time I took spiritual credit for something that wasn't mine. There's more, there's, there's just grace coming out of this fountain, just grace. And I, I think God intends to be glorified for his grace, which means we have to be aware of it. So that's, I mean, you want to run with that or, or is that? No, that makes sense because... I mean, I certainly totally realize and see his grace and, you know, 
slapping me around when I needed it. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, I totally give God the credit, and I just am sorry for the time I wasted. You know, I guess that's, yeah. I guess we all can look back and say that. So, yeah, absolutely. Remember that our sins are like at the bottom of the ocean. He's forgotten them. We need to quit bringing them up. But how can he discipline us if he's not aware of them? Yeah, I know that. I know what you're talking about. But he's not remembering them. We're we're the ones that keep bringing things up and remembering. But he, no, he disciplines... John MacArthur said. No, 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 please. Oh, dear. I'm on record. I'm on record. No, no, you're quoting the psalm. As far as the east is from the rest, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has separated our guilt from us. No, that's absolutely true. God will never, um, and again, I, I find it helpful to think in those two spheres, the legal sphere. Imagine your father's a police officer and you've committed crimes. Your father may arrest you. Your father's a judge. Your father may try you. And you're, you're acquitted of all of that. And you know, now you stay out late after curfew. You may f- suffer your father's discipline, but never the discipline of the law, never the discipline of the jail cell, never the just discipline in that sense. He might spank you when you get home, but you'll never deal with that legal justice discipline again. And as far as the east is from the west, the wrath of God is removed. The threat of hell is gone, never to be brought back. Absolutely. However... Um, our f- ongoing fellowship with God, according to 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sins. But if we say we are having fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness, we lie and deceive ourselves. So my daily fellowship with God is conditioned upon my walking in the light. So absolutely, my day-to-day closeness with God, my day-to-day fellowship is absolutely in response to my daily walk. And it waxes and wanes. And we're told, all I have to do is confess. All I have to do is, but if we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all and right, and it, fellowship's restored. I'm back in the light again. But if I wander off in the darkness, God's staying put and I'm over here. And so in, there is real-time effect. Now, that's family waxing and waning. I love my children. Nothing they do will ever get me to love them less. There's plenty they can do that makes me grow or Wax or wane in my pleasure I take in them, right? So there are times I'm, I'm so proud of my son. There are other times where I'm ashamed, right? Um, and so my pleasure in my children waxes and wanes, absolutely. My, my commitment for their good, my, my love and devotion to them, never. I think something similar to that is what is going on with our relationship with God, where God's pleasure, like when we're sinning, God is not pleased in us. Um, and he will... <laughs> According to Hebrews, beat us with rods and stripes. Every he, no, he scourges every son whom he receives. So that that's intense. Um, but none of that is in the sphere of wrath, hell, judgment. All of that is, according to Hebrews, that we may learn to partake in his holiness. So I, I don't want the one sphere to cancel out the other. There's wonderful truths. They're at the bottom of the sea, as far as the east is from the west, never to be on how blessed is the one in whom the Lord does not count iniquity, in whom the Lord um, does not find deceit. How blessed is that state of being justified by grace through faith. And, and in that legal sphere, absolutely. 
the problem is I think we can confuse both ways. We can bring one into the other sphere and the other into the other sphere. If you bring works into the legal sphere, you end up with salvation by works. But if you go the other way, you end up with lawlessness. It doesn't matter that I'm sleeping around. It doesn't matter that I'm getting drunk. It doesn't matter what I'm doing because I'm in Christ after all and God doesn't care or take into account what I do. And that's the other error I want to guard against. Um, and that's, we've got to grapple with how to deal with Paul, Romans 3. We contend that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And um, what we just read in 1 John 2 about um, abiding in Christ so that when he appears, we may not shrink back in shame. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And, and that's meaningless if, well, of course you're not going to shrink in shame because you're clothed in Christ and that's all God sees. No, I'm told to remain and abide in him so that outcome A happens, not outcome B. Um, and this you may be sure, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So he's motivating them to practice righteousness and the motivation he gives is how they will respond when he appears. I, anyway. Um, that's my best attempt. I know I'm doing a lot of talking. That's my best attempt to try to synthesize. Carol, help, help bring some clarity to this. Carol. Well, I don't know if anyone can get any clearer, <laughs> clearer than you. Oh, dear. I think there are plenty of people. You see, you, I, I, just, I throw enough words out there that I hope like a shotgun something sort of hits, you know? Um, but uh, other people who are more, who are fewer words, are we, sometimes can we couple couple you with John MacArthur, and we've got it all. Uh, <laughs> something like that, Carol. Something like that. Well, I, I'm going back to a little bit about what Lee said. Okay. And um, I, I think the the scariest thing for me is thinking of the judgment seat of Christ, not necessarily just what's on the surface. But all the stuff that we've thought, mm-hmm. and uh, oh my goodness, you know. And Jesus is emphatic. Every idle word, every thought, uh-huh. will yep. give an account. Yep. Well, I'm, I was reading, uh, this is the verses right before the, the one I quoted out of the Phillips there, but he ends up this big discussion in Romans 11. He says, um, so that uh, they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And I'm thinking the fact that we're sinners allows us to, allows God to show his mercy and grace and us to experience something that, is it Peter that says angels long to look into? Mm. Angels can't experience that, that mercy and grace that is just you know not that we uh not that we want to sin uh because we're under grace but uh, mm-hmm. the fact that we have sinned makes the mercy and grace of god just it shows this whole side of him we have the angels don't they don't see that right amen anyone else want to oh alex wants to chime in now so this is a two-part well, I'll just stick with one part. Um, we know that he does, there are times that he does discipline us here and now. Mm. If he deals with it now, does he deal again with it later? No. Okay. Oh, you're, are you asking the double jeopardy question? 
<laughs> no. Is that what you're asking? Well, just let's just take it different cases. Did Judas experience consequences for his sin in this life? Mm-hmm. He was so miserable that he hung himself. Did Judas experience consequences in the afterlife for his sin? Yes. Okay, so for an unbeliever, the answer is yes. Okay. Um, Moses, did he experience the righteousness of Christ? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. Did Moses get to enter the land? No. But Jesus paid for every sin of Moses on the tree, right? On the cross, including that sin? Yes. Okay. I, I th- yeah, I think you have to view it in the sort of the cosmic, legal... Like I'm just using Paul's law court metaphor from Romans, right? I think you've got to view that as one sphere. And then there's a reaping and sowing in this world. Sometimes it's just, you know, you, you sow to the wind, you reap to the whirlwind. You, you sow folly, you reap folly. You sow righteousness, you reap good things. Um, and other times it's specific discipline. Um, but within God's family... When, when God disciplines his children, it is not the wrath of a righteous judge poured out into them. It's of love. Let's go to, I've been referencing. Let's go to Hebrews 12. Take a look at it. Because the author of Hebrews gives some um, clarification on how to understand it. And I think that's the crucial point. So in Hebrews, and again, the whole point here is to encourage faithfulness and perseverance. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, start in chapter 12, verse 1. So remember, in chapter 11, he is given a list of people who are faithful in the Old Testament, telling us to consider them and their faith and imitate it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, namely the people he just referenced, let us lay aside every weight and sin. So he's got two categories of things to lay aside. Things that are wrong in and of themselves and things that simply slow us down. I heard someone do a message on that saying, it's not against the rules to wear a snowsuit in a, in a race, in a marathon. It's just not a good idea. Uh, it's not, you, can, you can wear snowshoes in a marathon. Not a terribly good idea. You know? And so there are some things that we need to set aside because they're wicked and they're wrong. There are some things that in and of themselves may be fine, but they're distracting us. Kind of like we were talking about this morning, just being distracted by things that can otherwise be good things. You know, this house project that my mom and my wife and I have could become a distraction in that sense. Right? It's a good, good enough thing, we think, but we ought not to be consumed by it. So laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, except he was standing when Stephen died. I don't know if I'm reading too much into that, but I'd like to think that you know, maybe he stood for that exit, um, but maybe not. Anyway, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. <laughs> that sort of smacks us when we're starting feeling too sorry for ourselves. I got it rough. You're like, you guys haven't even, got to, you haven't even started shedding blood for your struggles. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly. So the warning is, I'm going to think too little of God's discipline. Not too much. I'm going to make too little of it. The danger is, I'm going to make too little of it. Treat it too lightly. The danger is not that I'm taking it too seriously. 
My son, um, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. It is not punitive. It is not wrath. When we sentence someone to death in our country, there's nothing redemptive about it. It's punishment, pure and simple. It is not punitive. It is redemptive. He does it for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all disciplines. So when I discipline my children, it's not me pouring my wrath out on them. My children need to learn not to lie. My children need to learn to treat each other with kindness. And sometimes that folly is driven out, not through words, but through actions, right? But I'm not doing it because I'm angry and you're going to taste a bit of how angry I am. I'm trying to train them to be holy and righteous and loving to one another, right? So that's God's motivation with us. So when God disciplines us, it's not as though Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath and anger for our sin on the cross, except for this little bit that's held over. It's fatherly discipline in love for our good and for our holiness i think the the question is more about like the family court like the okay you know your your um pride in your kids or your shame in your kids mm -hmm. like it doesn't seem like all of that comes at the end it seems like he's dealing with that like there is discipline throughout our lives also there's this what? Sorry. There's discipline like throughout our lives also yes. for the family court issues. And oh, so yeah, it's yeah. not like at the end when we stand before him, all oh, of yeah. it is dealt with at once. It's, it seems no, like it would be throughout. Absolutely. The text we had in Luke has us focusing at his appearing. And so I'm focusing that those same types of motivations, which throughout the life of the Christian are true, absolutely, um, culminate at his appearing. But like go to Jude. There's only one chapter in Jude, so we can just say Jude. But Revelation, right before it, is Jude. We get a really remarkable um, instruction. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith... And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. And I think, again, that's referring to that love of God that can wax and wane. D.A. Carson um, has a helpful, you can either Google it and listen to two talks, or I can let you borrow a book, but the difficult doctrine of the love of God. And it's very helpful. And he argues, and I think rightly, that the Bible speaks of God's love in at least five different senses. And he, 
I want to argue, it's not that God has five different loves, but five different ways God speaks of his love. In the same way that I might say I love coffee and I love my wife, and I clearly don't mean exactly the same thing. I mean, maybe something close, but not the same. Um, um, and so there's a sense in which God loves his creation, right? It's very good, and it pleased him. And you read about how God cares for the animals. He loves them. He, he cares for the sparrow. Are you not worth much more than sparrows? So there's a sense we can speak of God's love for the world. And the danger with all of this is if you only grab onto one of these, and every time God speaks of his love, you make it that, you're going to end up in some sort of environmentalistic green justification by recycling faith. And no, God loves the world. He does. And there are absolutely passages that speak of that. Every time it speaks of God's love, that's not what it's talking about. Um, then there's God's love for mankind in general. And we speak of, is it not an act of love that his reign falls upon the just and the unjust? That Jesus weeps over Jerusalem in general. We see his, his heart for those people. And that's love. But then we have the love of God for his people. His, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the chesed. His covenant, loyal, steadfast, never letting go, always and forever love. Paralleled today, maybe in like marriage vow love right? So like, I'm still love everyone. I love my neighbor as myself, but I've made a promise to love my wife in a very particular way that I'm not loving everybody else. At least if I am, then there's something wrong. Um, so we can speak of that love. And, and God loves his people. He loves his children. Maybe you want to call it family love. And then there are passages like um, Jude that certainly speak of God's love. And here it's more that notion of his pleasure, I think, that, that waxing. But to me, it feels like love, right? God's smile upon my face, God's pleasure in me, and the guilt and the conviction I feel when I'm, when I'm sinning and I'm walking in darkness and I don't feel God's pleasure in me. And I think that's what Jude's talking about. I don't think he's saying, keep yourself in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, as if I could do that. I think he means, keep yourself in the love of God, walk in the light. And even then, if you keep reading in 24, it's God who causes that to happen. Now to him who is able to keep you. See, I'm to keep myself, but even if I keep myself from verse 21, it's God who's keeping you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. And again, if you take any of those ways of speaking of God's love and, and absolutize them, you're going to run into problems. And if you take that last way and absolutize it, you're going to be worrying at the end of every day, have I been faithful enough today for God to love me? And that's going to be a very miserable way to live. Okay? But if you just take God's love for all people and absolutize that, you're going to end up in universalism. God loves Hindus. He does. But I mean something different when I say God loves Hindus and Muslims and Mormons than I do like God loves his church. But if I mean exactly the same thing, you're going to end up in universalism, my friend. Um, and if you just have God loves his people, you're going to end up with, okay, God hates everyone else and he loves Christians and that's going to be a problem. And so we've got to be able to speak of these things meaningfully without totalizing any one of them and flattening it out so it always does that. Likewise, don't so hold on to he doesn't see our sin, which is true, but if he's going to discipline us, he has to be aware of it. You know, when... when uh, when, when David 
kills a man and steals his wife, and God sends Nathan to rebuke him, God hadn't forgotten it in the sea of forgetfulness. <laughs> Otherwise, he couldn't send Nathan to go rebuke him. Um, and, and so we, we have to be able to hold on to that as well. He can't discipline David. And there's consequences, generational consequences for David. The sword's never to leave your house. Right? There's discipline for what David he, Nathan says, let me, go there. Go to, go to uh, 2 Samuel. Um, you'll see both forgiveness and consequences. And it's not one or the other. Either it's forgiven in Christ and there's nothing, or... Okay, so 2 Samuel um, 9. No, not 9. 11. And 12. 12. It happens in 11. He's confronted in 12. 2 Samuel 12. And he comes to David, and he sets David up, tells him a story about a, a guy who had hundreds of sheep and a guy and a poor man who had one sheep... And the man with hundreds of sheep stole the poor man's sheep whom he loved and slaughtered it and fed it to a, strange, a guest who was visiting. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan says to him, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. And now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives for your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. When was that fulfilled? When Absalom mounted his coup, successfully, initially at least, went up on the top of his roof and in public lay with his father's wives to despoil him. This absolutely happened. Absolutely. And it's discipline. Okay? For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So this, this, this rebuke and judgment comes, and out of David's mouth comes repentance and confession. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Well, if he put away my sin, then why is the sword not going to leave the house? Because we're talking about two different things. You're not going to go to hell for this, David. The Lord's taken away your sin. Oh, there's going to be some discipline. There's going to be some consequences. They don't rule each other out. They're not mutually exclusive concepts. Nathan can say, you've been pardoned. You've been free. The Lord took away your sin. And here are the things that are going to be consequences for what you've done. Um, nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the most immediate consequence, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And then David prays for the child. You know the story goes on. But in one passage... Pardon and remission of sin and guilt. The Lord takes it away from you. And discipline and consequences. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. And we can't say just because the Lord's taken away our sin in Christ that 
there's no discipline, there's no consequences. That right here are both. Any? Okay, we're at time. If you have more questions about this, you can talk to me afterwards. We're going to break here. I will see you all next week. God bless.